How Five Notable Women Were Educated by Kate Sanborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How Five Notable Women Were Educated by Kate Sanborn. Which five shall be honored? Men and women are such curious and often pathetic combinations of the traits of their ancestors that if we look back far enough, we can always find the different elements that produce a notable character. Some are born educated, some come with an intense longing for knowledge, others with every advantage refuse to be educated. Women have not often had a fair chance, but now our colleges for women offer such opportunities for mental discipline and steady drill in any desired direction that all will be altered. Thus far, women who have distinguished themselves have achieved their success by their own genius and persistence, aided by a father's guidance and a good library, or obliged to almost fight for what they were determined to obtain. Fanny Burney had less education than any of her sisters, but she had an impulse for writing and produced a novel which Burke sat up all night to read. Evelina created a tremendous sensation, and by it she will always be remembered. Walpole said, quote, she knew the world and penetrated character before she had stepped over the threshold. Unquote. Surly Johnson said he was too proud to eat as he sat by Fanny at their first dinner party. Education and experience spoiled her style and made her tedious, so we will not count her. Many notable women owe their love of learning to a father's teaching, as Elizabeth Carter, the famous linguist, and Matilda Betham, author and artist, yet all in the best sense educated themselves. Maria Edgeworth, 1767 to 1849, was trained carefully by her eccentric and conceited father. Their lives blended, their names cannot be separated. Quote, he gave her the most bracing kind of education, moral and intellectual, unquote. In one of his frequent letters, he says, I wish to communicate to you what little knowledge I have acquired, that you may have a tincture of every species of literature and form your taste by choice and not by chance. He always talked with her as an equal, suggesting the subjects upon which, as a child, she was to write for his criticism. She always told him her first rough plan. He wanted to judge of the bare skeleton, then would give it to her to fill out. Mr. Day, a learned man still more crotchety than Mr. Edgeworth, was interested in Miss Maria, to whom he opened his library and enjoyed directing her studies. The little girl was also sent to a fashionable boarding school where she underwent all the usual tortures of backboards, iron collars, and dumbbells, with the unusual one of being hung by the neck to draw out the muscles and increase the growth, a signal failure in her case. Like Miss Bronte, she was a tiny woman. She always had unusual powers of concentration, and at this school would sit absorbed in her book while the other children were romping round her, as in after years she was obliged to do her literary work in the sitting-room where all the family were required to assemble. As there were eighteen children who lived to grow up, that sitting-room must have been a trying place for the young author, and it was well she possessed such capacity for abstraction. She was early noted for her entertaining stories, and delighted to keep her schoolmates awake at night with her improvised tales, a sure proof of their charm. You remember that both Scott and Turgenev, the great Russian novelist, owned their indebtedness to this little lady. Sir Walter averred it was her tender, humorous, admirable delineations of Irish character that led him to try to do the same thing for his own country, and the Russian said he should never have written about the woes of the peasantry of his land if he had not been inspired by what Miss Edgeworth had done. 
If you want to know more of her, read Miss Thackeray's sketch. Mary Somerville, 1780-1872, has always interested me greatly. I want no more delightful reading than her personal recollections edited by her daughter, a woman of indomitable energy and perseverance, by which in her ardent thirst for knowledge she overcame obstacles apparently insurmountable at a time when well-nigh totally debarred from education. But she would be educated, though father and mither and I should go mad, and she succeeded in becoming the most learned woman in England. She was interested in everything, science, art, literature. What a grand nature! What a big brain! What appreciation of the world she lived in, always progressing, always ready for more knowledge. To condense from her daughter's words and her own inimitable narrative gives but a faint idea of her struggles, her ambition, her versatility. Her mother did not forbid her reading, but an old maid aunt did disapprove, saying, I wonder you let Mary waste her time in reading. She never sews more than if she were a man. So she was sent to the village school to learn plain needlework, and afterward the house linen was given into her charge to make and to mend. Mary thought it unjust that women should have been given a desire for knowledge if it were wrong to acquire it. Among their books she found Chapone's Letters to Young Women and resolved to follow the course of history there recommended. One in French she read with the help of a dictionary. The village schoolmaster taught her a few weeks in the winter evenings, but only the ordinary studies. He taught Latin and navigation, but only to boys. She was allowed to learn the use of two small globes, and at night she spent many hours by her window studying the stars by the aid of the celestial globe. She also taught herself Latin enough to read Caesar's commentaries. Her uncle, Dr. Somerville, was the first friend or relative who approved of her ambition. She had the courage to tell him, when visiting at his home, of her efforts to learn Latin, and he assured her that in ancient times many women in England had been distinguished scholars, and that if she would go to his study an hour or two before breakfast, he would read Virgil with her. She says she was never happier in her life than during visits to this uncle. Strange to say, she found in an illustrated magazine of fashions an introduction to the great study of her life. She was invited to call on a young lady and see some fancy work she was doing. I will now give her version. I went next day, and after admiring her work and being told how it was done, she showed me a monthly magazine with colored plates of ladies' dresses, charades, and puzzles. At the end of a page, I read what appeared to me to be simply an arithmetical question but on turning the page I was surprised to see strange-looking lines mixed with letters, chiefly X's and Y's, and asked, What is that? Oh, said Miss Ogilvy, it's a kind of arithmetic. They call it algebra, but I can tell you nothing about it. Her persistency in finding out all that was to be known about algebra and geometry after this was marvelous. She sat up so late studying, when she had at last obtained a Euclid, that her candle had to be taken away from her as soon as it was time for her to be in bed. Then she would depend on her memory and demonstrate a certain number of problems every night. Her father was distressed and said to her mother, Peg, we must put a stop to this, or we shall have Mary in a straitjacket one of these days. There was X, who went raving mad about the longitude. With all this fervor for study, Mary was a healthy, natural, fun-loving girl and never devoted herself exclusively to her favorite study. She was passionately fond of poetry, especially Shakespeare and Dante, read the Greek dramatist in the original, was a good musician, painted well from nature, was skilled in housekeeping and sewing, making all her own dresses, even for balls, 
fond of dancing, and never without partners, did exquisite pieces of fancy work, womanly in every way. Until her second marriage she never had any sympathy in her studies in her own home, and Mr. Somerville's sister wrote, when told of the engagement, that she hoped Mary would give up her foolish manner of life and studies and become a useful and respectable wife. Even in later years she did not escape criticism. After publishing her physical geography, she was preached against by name in York Cathedral for holding heretical theories on geology. What she achieved by her self-gained education, the books she wrote, the honors she received, her friendships with noted scientists of her time, her foreign travel and interesting records of experiences, her beautiful old age, and her lasting influence, all this must merely be hinted. Carolyn Herschel, 1750-1848, another woman distinguished for her astronomical researches, was the ideal sister, and through her devotion to her brother William, she educated herself to be his assistant, his amanuensis, his willing slave. As a child, she often stood freezing on the shore to see her brother skating on the Stadtgraven till he chose to go home. In afterlife, she would stand beside his telescope in the nights of midwinter to write down his observations when the very ink was frozen in the bottle. By sheer force of will and devoted affection, she learned enough of mathematics and of methods of calculation to be invaluable to him. During one of her brother's vacations, she hoped to receive a little instruction but he was too weary after his winter's work, so he would retire to bed with a basin of milk or a glass of water, and Smith's Harmonies of Nature or Ferguson's Astronomy, and his first thoughts on rising were how to obtain instruments for viewing those objects himself, of which he had been reading. She had a remarkably fine voice and could have succeeded as a public singer. She also longed to support herself as a music teacher, but she says, I was much hindered in my musical practice by my help being continually wanted in the execution of the various contrivances. I found that I was to be trained as an assistant astronomer, and by way of encouragement, a telescope adapted for sweeping was given me. I was to sweep for comets. She did discover eight, but she never thought of fame for herself. When William was polishing mirrors, she would feed him, putting bits in his mouth, or read aloud his favorite books. She polished the brass of the instruments, ran to the clock, measured the ground with poles, ground mirrors, and all with real enthusiasm, because it would help her brother. Her mother was not willing that she should be educated, denying her all privileges for study, but she was well trained in every department of housekeeping and was always a famous knitter. After sixteen years of unselfish devotion to her brother, he married, and she afterward lived in lodgings, still minding the heavens for his sake but necessarily sad and lonely. She made three elaborate catalogues of stars, star clusters, and nebulae, and was duly honored by various astronomical societies. But she lived only for her brother and his advancement, caring nothing for her own distinction. She was educated by affection. Her dominant idea was always the same. I am nothing. I have done nothing. All I am, all I know, I owe to my brother. I am only the tool which he shaped to his use a well-trained puppy-dog, would have done as much. This brief outline is condensed from her memoir by Mr. John Herschel and a life study by Monsieur Betham Edwards. After thinking over a long list of women, I have decided to select Georges Sand and Mary Lyon for a closing contrast. No two could be more unlike, more exactly opposite in ancestry, education, character, and general surroundings. Taine gives this idea. Tell me the climate, the epoch, the environment, 
and I show you the man. These two women, each so strong in her own way, are most striking illustrations of his belief. At the time Georges Sand appeared, there was, in France, above all other countries, a tropical luxuriance of literary production. Victor Hugo, Théophile Gautier, Alfred de Musset, etc. Her curiously mixed lineage led naturally to the combination that made her just what she was. In her veins ran the blood of heroes, kings, artists, nobles, grisettes. All was irregular, wild, impulsive, undisciplined. With this came genius, courage, and many fascinating qualities. Her father was a handsome, accomplished, unprincipled army officer, her mother a dark-eyed, passionate, uneducated woman, the daughter of a poor bird-seller. Their child was named for the decorous grandmother, Aurora, the only person of irreproachable life in the entire connection. There was no sympathy between the two women except their intense love for the beautiful little girl. After her father's sudden death, it was decided that Aurora should remain in her grandmother's home at Noan. The special bent of a nature is soon developed. Before she could read, she loved to lisp out wondrous tales conjured out of her vivid imagination. Later she would tell long, rambling stories, full of romance and rhapsody. A fault, she said, which I contracted then and have never lost. Was it not rather an uncontrollable inborn impulse? At eight she tried to write out one of these stories, and her fond grandmother saw in it proofs of genius. There was always a strong devotional tendency in this queer makeup. Discovering that Santa Claus was only a myth, she was deeply grieved, but she soon raised altars of stone and moss in a corner of the old garden to an imaginary deity whom she named Karamb. And what education was hers? Most important was the education from nature in her country home, a place she never tired of describing in her novels. Her father's old tutor gave her a somewhat desultory training in the rudiments. Then came a few winters in Paris with the despised accomplishment lessons and the detested dinner parties where her grandmother's venerable friends gossiped and took snuff. At thirteen she was sent to a convent where she figured first as Madcap and then as Saint Aurora, for she had a period of intense religious interest and wished to become a nun. Of serious religious education she received none at all. On her return she educated herself by miscellaneous reading. Is the rest of her life a puzzle to anyone? She says herself, What we call fatality is the character of the individual, the character of the individual is his organization, and the organization of each of us is the result of a mixture of joining of races and the modified continuation of a succession of types. On the other hand, the ancestors of Mary Lyon, 1797 to 1849, were of irreproachable character. As far back as can be traced, all were followers of Christ. Her maternal grandfather was eminently pious. His six children all became Christians in early life. His father and his son each bore the name of Isaac, each held the office of deacon, and it was the same story all through. On both sides you find ministers, deacons, and praying, God-fearing women. Her own father was never known to speak an angry word, was often sent for to pray with the sick and dying. Her mother was a person of strong mind and active piety. Mary Lyon's childhood was spent on a rock-bound upland farm. She has well described that mountain home and her mother's prayers day by day for her fatherless children. Her opportunities for education were limited to the usual district school of the country, but she would learn, for she was a born student, so she contrived to stay with relatives who lived near an academy, 
help about the work to pay board, and study tremendously, unceasingly, dangerously. Few constitutions, fewer brains, could have stood such a strain. She slept only four hours out of the twenty-four. She seemed also to be born religious. There were then no Sabbath schools, and on pleasant Sundays the nooning was spent in the woods or the graveyard, quite a social rendezvous still for villagers. But Mary stayed by herself, wondering at the levity of her friends. She was also a born teacher, and her services began to be eagerly sought. As soon as she gained a little money, she would go somewhere to study up some branch in which she felt herself deficient. At first, she was too much like the traditional blue stocking, no order, no interest in such trivial matters as clothes. You must read her life compiled by ex-president Hitchcock of Amherst College to realize how bravely she conquered her bad habits, developed her good qualities, and educated herself that she might educate others. More than 3,000 pupils were trained and helped by her because she had so earnestly, so conscientiously, helped herself. I leave the lesson from these lives to be drawn by my readers. End of How Five Notable Women Were Educated by Kate Sanborn